All right, I want you to uh, look, think back on um, when is the last time you had fun at the beginning of a dating relationship? For some of us, it's been a real long time, you know what I mean? Uh, for some of us, it might be right now. But think back to those days. I mean, don't you remember, you go on a few dates, it's real casual, there's no investment. You go on a few more, you tell your mom about it, and then she keeps asking you about it, and then you wish you didn't tell her. And next thing you know, you begin to wonder, what is this? Are we just friends? Or is there something more here? You find yourself, you're swaying on this bridge between unofficial and official. And it's not always clear how you get from the unofficial side to the official side. It seems like there's a thousand ways to fall off this swaying bridge. You have these doubts in your headspace. You're trying to answer questions like, do they like me as much as I like them? What do they really want out of this? Is it too soon for us to have the DTR? The define the relationship talk. I mean, some of us, we have horror stories about these conversations where we find out that the other party doesn't want to make any further commitment. All they want is just to be friends. I've been there. That's a story for another time. Love you, babe. (laughs) But for all the pain you've got in your memory bank about these dreaded conversations, these DTRs, they're very necessary. You've got to wade out into the waters. You've got to risk the rejection to find out if the other person wants to move forward. But what do we do? Instead of risking, we begin to put out some feelers. We want to gather some data. Did they invite me over to their family's house? What do their friends say that the person says about me? Do they post pictures of me on the socials? And once we collect enough good data, what do we do? Then we go for it. We take the risk. We can approach being direct and we can have the DTR. And for those of you who are dating, I respect you guys so much. So much. It's so hard. It's really tough work. But all of us, Dating or not, we do the same thing with God, don't we? We aren't sure how he feels about us. We put out some feelers and we try to see if he's serious. And what we find in our text today is that God is not like us. He's very direct. We don't have to guess where God stands with us. He's not manipulative. He's not insecure. And when you know what God thinks about you, you begin to approach your whole relationship with God very differently. That's what we see in our text this morning. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him, meaning Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The word of the Lord. 
It's very clear that John has a message when you look at verse 5. And the message really does three things. It outlines who God is, that's verse 5. It outlines who we are, verses 6 and 8 and 10. And it outlines how we can have a relationship with God in verses 7 to 9. So let's look at who God is, verse 5. Verse 5, it says God is light. This is a metaphor we find throughout all the scriptures to tell us who God is. And it describes God's holiness, his moral purity, his justice, his righteousness. And for God, everything revolves around this aspect, his light, his holiness. It revolves around what is right and true. That's at the very center of who God is. I think this begins to become clear when we compare it to us. Think about what's at the center for you. What does your life revolve around? Doesn't our lives revolve around what makes us happy and comfortable? Because that's true, because this is our natural orientation, we've got to be disrupted by God's holiness. We've got to see God's light in order for us to have a right relationship with him. And we see this happen uh, all throughout the scriptures, you see it a couple, you see it in the Old Testament and you see it in the New Testament. One of the places you see it in the Old Testament is with Job. Job had lost everything. He questioned God's goodness. And so God appears to Job and he tells Job of his great power. When God finishes speaking, Job wasn't like, hey God, thanks for the theology lesson. Job doesn't ask God questions like, why'd you let all those hard things happen to me? Do you know what Job does after God tells him of his power? Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Why did he say that? He said it because he had encountered God as light. He had encountered God's holiness. Think about Isaiah, again, the Old Testament. God appears to Isaiah and he appears to Isaiah in the temple. And once seeing God, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when God shows up to Isaiah in all his glory, it was exposing for Isaiah. He saw his imperfections and he cries out, Woe is me. It's kind of like having a spotlight shine on a wall that you had just finished painting. It looked good enough under normal lighting and from a distance, but when the spotlight reveals the drips and reveals the uneven spots in your shoddy paint job, you begin to see that you're not so perfect. That's what happens when God shows up to you in his holiness. And you have Peter. Peter was out catching fish all night and he caught nothing. Jesus shows up to Peter and he tells Peter to go back out. Peter goes back out reluctantly and he reels in so many fish that his boat begins to sink. Now, I would think Peter would show up to Jesus and be like, whoa, where'd those fish come from? Unbelievable. Thanks for the fish, bro. That's not what Peter does. Here's what Peter does. Peter falls down at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now Jesus didn't have to confront Peter and tell him he's a sinner. He didn't have to give Peter a certain kind of look. 
All he had to do was show up as light in his holiness, in his divinity. And that pulled Peter to the ground. See, this view of God, God is holy. It's unnerving for us. We like to think of God first as a God of love, and he is that. John says it very explicitly in, in, in this book, in chapter 4, verse 16. But the first thing he says about God is that he's light. Here in verse 5. And the order's significant. It matters that light comes before love. Because God's holiness, his light, it shows us our unholiness and our need for a Savior. Last week, I was with a mentor of mine, and uh, he shared his story of me of coming to faith. I, I hadn't heard it before. I'd spent a good amount of time with this person. I have, a, uh, I have really an immeasurable amount of respect for this person. And um, he said that when he was in his 30s, uh, he had a, a neighbor that invited him to a Bible study. He said he wasn't a Christian. He hadn't been to he went to church some as a kid. He would have called himself a Christian, but he didn't take his faith seriously at all. So he shows up to this Bible study, and uh, they're doing uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you've all heard it. If you've not been around church hardly at all, it's the love chapter. You've probably heard it at weddings before. You've probably seen it uh, put in calligraphy and hanging on somebody's wall. I begin to do uh, that chapter, and the person who's leading the Bible study, he says, he asked them, who is the person you love the most in the world? For my friend, he said, oh, that's easy. That's my wife. And he said, all right, I want you to begin to evaluate your love for that person as we go through this list of what God, of what love is here in chapter 13. So they start working through the list. The first one is love is patient. And my friend's like, yeah, I'm pretty good at that. Love is kind. He says, check. Love doesn't envy, check. And they just keep going through the list. And finally, they get to the part that says, love keeps no record of wrong. My friend said he hung his head. Because in his daytime, or daytimers were the things that uh, were used in the 80s and 90s. So if you're younger than me, they're pretty much like a calendar, like a paper calendar that was also a wallet that you kept in your back pocket. They were awesome. I used them in college. It was great. And he had a daytimer and he pulled it out. And what he had been doing is he had been keeping a record of all the ways in which his wife had wronged him. And he said this was the very first time that he saw that he was a sinner. And brother and sister, that's what God's holiness does. That's what God as light does. It shows us our dark ways. We see these dark ways in three places in our text. The first one is in verse 6. Right there in verse 6, John uses verbs like walk and practice. And so we walk in darkness, verse 6. We do not practice the truth, verse 6. If you notice, both these are active terms of what a wrong-headed lifestyle is really like. And what we don't naturally understand is that we're creatures of God, which means that we, are to, we ought to bend our wills to his, but we don't want to. We want to be autonomous. We want to call the shots and do what we think is best for us without any outside authority. And think about what this does. If we all live that way, it automatically puts us at odds with one another because they're doing what's best for them too. 
But when we submit to a common standard, when we submit to God's holiness, to his light, then we have fellowship with one another. So that's why John says what he does in verse 7. John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See, you expect it to say that we have fellowship with God, and we do, but he emphasizes our common life together as believers. This is why the first step to having good friends is to refuse living to your own inner God and submit to God's ways. But we naturally don't. We walk in the darkness. The second and third way that the darkness shows up, one's in verse 8 and one's in verse 10, and for the most part, they're talking about the same thing. Both of them are talking about the denial of the presence of sin in our lives. And we deny the presence of sin in our lives in a whole variety of ways. We attribute it to things like receiving bad parenting as a child. We attribute it to genetic propensities. We attribute it to a lack of adequate education. We soften our sin and we use words like mistake and slip up and flaw. See, we'll do anything except call what is really sin, sin. That's because we're self-deceived. Let me give you a few tests of how you might be self-deceived about your sin. First one, what do you do when you're confronted? See, if if you're defensive and you can't take responsibility, you might be self-deceived. Let me tell you a story about this. This is from Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher from the 19th century. And Charles Spurgeon had somebody who came up to him and said that he was perfect. So that he had no sin. That he'd gotten, he got to be that mature. And so uh, intrigued was Charles Spurgeon. And he invites this man over for dinner. And he hears his claims through. And eventually Spurgeon rises up from his chair. He picks up a glass of water. And he throws it on this man's face. Well, immediately... And quite understandably, this perfect man, he shows his, imperfe- his imperfections. He causes a scene. He, his anger comes out. His language becomes cross. And then Spurgeon replies, ah, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim. He had simply fainted, and I have revived him with a glass of water. <laughs> Don't you love that? See, he was confronted about what was clearly his sin, his lie, his self-deception. He couldn't own it. So what do you do when you're confronted? Another one is when you're in conflict. And conflict doesn't always happen when you're confronted, but there's other kinds of conflict. So when you're in conflict, do you primarily put the reason for the conflict on the other party? If you do, you might be self-deceived. Here's another way. Sneaky. When someone's hurting, what do you do? Do you always empathize all the way through? If you do, you might be self-deceived. See, sometimes people are having a hard time for no fault of their own. That's true. But even when that's the case, it's really easy for the person going through a hard time because of no fault of their own to begin to deal with it in unhealthy ways that don't need to be empathized with. And sometimes we only empathize all the way through. Why do we do this? Because we don't want that person in the future to confront us. And what happens? Everybody's self-deceived. Here's another one. 
Can you get particular? Can you get granular even about your sin? Now, this might be most important. Because if you can move from saying you're a general sinner, which is pretty much what we do here every week, and if you can move to being a particular kind of sinner that's different than other kinds of sinners, then you might have a beat on your sinful nature and you aren't self-deceived. Just a few tests. But this issue of self-deception regarding your sin, it's constant throughout your Christian life. You never grow out of it. You've got to remain vigilant to be honest about your sin and not hide it. And at the end of the day, those who deny their sinful nature, they don't deceive anybody. Certainly not God. But here's the thing. John gives us an alternative to both things. Both the self-deception and the walking in darkness. He says that we can walk in the light instead of the darkness and that we can confess our sin instead of deny our sin. And it sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Just try really hard to do the right thing and try really hard to be truthful and vulnerable when you don't do the right thing. The problem is, is that really is just another form of moralism. And the difference between being a moralist and being a real Christian is how you think about your sin. See, a moralist, they have confidence in their performance and a Christian has confidence in Jesus. And as you become to a deeper knowledge of your sin, when you begin to see just how compulsory your sin is, when you begin to see that your sin is more than behavior, but it involves your motivations too, and you happen to be a moralist, that deeper knowledge of your sin, it will devastate you. You'll run from a holy God. But if you're a Christian and you come to see just how sinful you are, you'll see that it becomes a chance to gain a greater appreciation for God's love for you. You'll fly to him instead of run from him. How? You see it in verse 7. You see it in verse 9. You see how we can have a relationship with God. Verse 7 says, The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Verse 9 says, As you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And brother and sister, that's the gospel. You see that what makes the confession of sin effective is not the sincerity of the confessor, but the faithfulness and justice of God. I mean, think about it. And Jesus' blood was shed for this very purpose. The Father sent Jesus to atone for sin, so he would be unfaithful to that purpose if he ignored the confession or if he withheld the grace that was promised. So brother and sister, Jesus' blood guarantees that if you come to God, that if you rely on him to aid you to walk in the light, and if you come to him and confess your sin, he will never, ever, no, not ever reject you. These are the terms of his relationship with you. It's defined, you're on solid ground because he's way more committed to you than you'll ever be committed to him. So come to him this morning. Let me get practical for just a second as we close. Let's talk about both those kinds of darknesses. Remember, walking in the darkness instead of walking in the light. We said that walking in the darkness, walking in the light, these, this is a lifestyle, this is behavioral. This has to do with your actions. Let's talk about the other thing. Let's talk about self-deception. Let's talk about confession for a moment. Let's talk about what Jesus' blood has to do with both parts. What Jesus' blood has to do with your obedience and what Jesus' blood has to do with your confession. 
Think about your obedience for a second. Think about what Jesus' blood does. Now, Jesus' blood is, serves a lot of functions. Jesus' blood does, in fact, get you into heaven, but it does so much more. You don't move past Jesus' blood onto some level, other level of maturity. What you begin to see is how Jesus' blood can be applied to your whole life. Let's apply to obedience. What motivates your obedience? Isn't it fear? Isn't it not wanting to get caught and not having to suffer the consequences? Isn't that usually how we think about obedience? And here's how you know you're stuck in fear. You lose sleep wondering if you've been good enough. But when you know you're clean and you're good enough because of Jesus' blood, then you begin to rest secure. You're not motivated by fear anymore. You're motivated by gratitude to be obedient. You're always looking for ways in your behavior to thank God for his love for you. So you want to honor him with your sexuality, not out of fear of a lightning bolt, but out of love for the body he gave you. You want to give your money away instead of hoard it for yourself and for your family or to spend it all on temporary pleasures because you see that Jesus became poor spiritually so that you might become rich spiritually. That's what Jesus' blood has to do with your obedience. You see it? Think about what Jesus' blood does with your confession. Jesus' blood is actually what makes confession possible. See, when you take your sin seriously and you know you have a tendency towards self-deception and someone points out your sin, you know what you'll do instead of defend yourself? You'll thank them. (laughs) You'll say, thanks for bringing that out. Just another opportunity for me to see the greatness of Jesus' blood shed on my behalf. Thanks a ton. Think about when you take your sin seriously and someone's going through a hard time, you'll enter into that and you'll say, okay, I've got a tendency to really want to be liked here. I'm going to empathize with them. Jesus himself was compassionate towards all kinds of hurting people and I'm going to be compassionate too. But Jesus wasn't afraid to ask a hard question. So I'm going to hang in there. Maybe the Holy Spirit will give me a hard question to ask. It'll feel risky. I might get rejected. But you know what? I'm infinitely liked by my heavenly father who sent his son to shed his blood for me. You see what it does? See, when you take your sin seriously, when you want God to show you what his blood does, you'll begin to ask him, instead of hiding your sin from him, you'll begin to say, Hey, uh, uh, you, you begin to pray with the psalmist, Psalm 139. Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any offensive way in me. You'll ask him to reveal more of your sin. Because you know that there's so much sin that you are not even aware of. See, if, if, if God were to pull back the curtain of your heart and show you all the sin in your heart, you know what you'd do? You'd jump off a bridge. All of us would. But what happens is you say, God, will you gently... Pull back the curtain and show me a little more progressively because I want to know the greatness of Jesus' blood spilt on my behalf. So brother and sister, this morning, cheer up. (laughs) You're a sinner. And you're loved by a holy God who demonstrated his love for you by the blood of his son. So walk in the light and confess your sin. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for your great love for us, Lord, that it's not something we feel, it's something that happened historically, Lord, that it happened one day on Calvary when you shed your blood for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look back on that day to help us look forward with hope, that one day we will be made all well. Lord, there's coming a day when we won't have to confess our, our sin anymore because you will have perfected us in the life to come. Oh, Lord, we can't wait for that day to dwell with you in the light. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.